Welcome to Red Dot Project. My name is Phil, and I'm here with Stephanie. This is a podcast brought to you by Red Dot Project. Red Dot Project, we haven't been around for a little while, so thank you again. I'm sure it's a surprise to see us pop into your podcast feed, but uh, we are back, and we hopefully will be able to do these a little bit more regularly right now especially given the situation that we're all in uh with this pandemic so yeah how are you doing stephanie um i've been doing pretty good um i'd say it's just been sort of like a period of adjustment for us all so i was temporarily laid off my part-time job for a while but we've since reopened and so i kind of was able to socially distance at home during that time. And then in terms of my schooling, courses were moved online. And then there were just adjustments that had to be made to our placement for our upcoming year. But that's to be expected, I guess. Um, <laughs> what about you? What have you been up to? Uh, not too, too much. It's I got I had a bit of a delay where I had to feel the effects of being in uh, social distance and isolation. So I got to finish out my semester online teaching. Uh, so it kept me busy, even though I was at home, but I had stuff to do. And then once that finished, that's when it sort of hit me, uh, like most people, um, just uh, not knowing what to do with yourself every day. And yeah, so I think I'm starting to hit my stride a little, getting used to what we're experiencing. So hopefully we don't have to live in this type of manner too, too long and we get to be out a little bit more freely than we are. But um, yeah, this is where we're at. So uh, we will make do the best we can. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so because we are in the middle of a pandemic, we have switched to recording remotely. So you're in your home and I'm in mine. And uh, we're trying out this new program that we found that hopefully can record nicely and it sounds good for all the listeners. Uh, so if it doesn't work, then we'll try something new the next time. Yeah, so we apologize in advance if there's um, <laughs> any uh, uh, robotic voices or <laughs> yeah, yeah communication delays. We are remote, and that is why. <laughs> yeah, so it's, you know, it's anyone who's used to Zoom calls and things like that, they probably are pretty used to it right now. There's always at least one person that it doesn't have the fastest internet, and then it just sort of cuts out. This is our new normal. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, we are in the middle of a pandemic. or Yeah, I would say we're probably still in the middle right now. We hear about a second wave coming. I don't know if it doesn't seem like we've received that yet. Um, numbers are going down a little bit. In at least the last couple of days, we've been under 300 uh, new cases in Ontario. So we have been seeing more and more o things open up, like uh, stores and this, and uh, little things here and there are starting to come into operation. So what do we know now about 
this COVID-19 that uh, I'm sure we didn't know earlier. I think the information is coming to us fast every day and it's continuing to change because I remember when this thing started and I was talking in class and I was trying to like reassure people that this is going to be okay and we're going to make it through. And then next thing you know, we're on lockdown and I look like a liar. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, it didn't age well. uh, My attempts to keep people calm. Um, But uh, hopefully no one holds that against me. I was trying my best to keep positive, but unfortunately we had to flatten the curve. So that's what we're doing. I think it's such a rapidly evolving situation and was, especially at the beginning when everything happened. And then, so yeah, it was definitely hard to foresee that this would become (laughs) the state of things, but uh, we adapt as humans, so... (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, hopefully you haven't uh, had any uh, hand sanitizer drinks or Lysol <laughs> injection to take yeah. care of it. But, um, you know, I think social distancing is the best thing that we can do. Yeah, definitely. Especially those of us uh, who have the luxury of doing that. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. For sure. So, you know, I think going into today's topic, which is what? Um, So I guess today's topic is really just (laughs) COVID-19 and how this really disproportionately impacts some communities more than others um, would be, I guess, our more specific focus. But I guess we just wanted to kick things off quickly by updating you guys on what where we've been at as an organization and what Red Dot Project has been doing during this time. Yeah, so right when, I guess, mid-early March, when things really started to shut down, uh, we we did our uh, delivery of our kits in March, and we saw that it was very difficult to find people on our street outreach. Uh, there's the locations that we generally go to, usually we try to piggyback off the traffic from a lot of the food deliveries that happen in those areas and when we showed up at those times uh, we didn't find people there um, like they normally would so it uh, prompted us on our end to restrict the street outreach program and focus on our uh, partnerships with different drop-in centers across Toronto and so that's what we've been continuing to do for the last couple of months And it looks like we are getting ready to start up with the street outreach consistently again, hopefully this month. So in the, I think the next week or the week after when we go out for our deliveries, uh, we will be walking the streets again and trying to find people who are living on the streets. Other than that, uh, we've done a couple other things on our back end, you know, help uh, this time has given us opportunity to organize a little bit where uh, generally, we're just always on the go and doing the next thing. Now we got a chance to sort of catch up on some of our bookkeeping and things like that. And um, also, it allowed us to really focus on some of our advocacy and uh, social media usage and really be able to promote what we do and also some of the causes and some of the other important issues that we see that we should be 
spreading awareness on. So I think last month, in the month of May, it was Sexual Assault Awareness Month in Canada. So a lot of our blog posts were geared towards awareness in that topic. Uh, this month, it's National Indigenous History Month and also Pride Month. So a lot of our blog, blog posts are going to be a little bit more geared towards those topics as well. Right. And also it's it's um, interesting to note also those three specific uh, populations or like, I guess, communities that you mentioned are also amongst those that COVID is really having a really strong impact on in many ways. So that kind of goes hand in hand with um, what we're going to be talking about today. Yes. So I think before we get into the thick of our podcast, uh, let's give a quick overview of some of the uh, numbers that we've seen with regards to COVID-19 and positive cases. So as of June 7th, 2020, the City of Toronto have seen 12,707 cases. We've had 9,746 recoveries and 944 deaths. Can you guess the areas that, that has been hardest hit by COVID-19? I would say probably the Rexdale area and maybe um, on the east end around Scarborough would be. Yes. Yeah, that is exactly uh, the two areas that have been pretty much the hardest hit. The West End specifically really got uh, hit pretty hard when we're looking at areas like West Humber, Clareville, uh, Mount Olive, and Jamestown. Uh, those two areas combined their right neighboring neighborhoods, and uh, together they've gotten about 656 cases alone. And then looking at the Jane and Finch area, so near York University, Downsview, um, Jane Heights, Glenfield, that area, that's three neighborhoods have been hit with about 980, 990 cases, it looks like, my, my quick math on the fly. So yeah, that sort of West End have been hit really hard. And then also if you go over to, to the Scarborough end, the Woburn and Rouge area, um, they've seen about 465 on that end there. So uh, definitely on the two ends is where we've seen the most uh, cases pop up. Um, surprisingly enough, the downtown core hasn't seen as much, but again, possibly because we've been on a pretty strict shutdown. So all the businesses and all the people working in Bay Street and things like that aren't there. So that could be probably why you don't see the numbers there. But um, yeah, we've definitely seen those two ends. You know, do we have any kind of explanation of why we could, I guess, guess why they're happening right. in those areas? Well, more? there was a CBC article that was released back in May. Um, which reported that lower income people and new immigrants in particular are at higher risk for COVID-19. Um, so the numbers from this data sort of suggest that uh, the pandemic more adversely impacts those with lower incomes, um, which includes newcomers to the city. So it, yeah, like I think like this data really shows that um, 
that sort of like the higher percentage, the highest percentage of individuals living below the poverty line also coincide with the those who have the highest rate of COVID-19 cases. So this group reported to have 113 cases per 100,000 people. And if you look at that in comparison to 73 cases per 100,000 people reported in the highest income group. So definitely there is that disparity that exists in terms of lower income groups versus higher income groups. Um, and these numbers also can continue to be reflected when you're looking at like the number of hospitalizations moving forward too. And then you also note that the high uh, the group with the highest percentage of recent immigrants are also reporting as having the highest rate of COVID-19 cases with 104 per 100,000 people. And um, in comparison to the group with the lowest percentage of recent immigrants, um, which reported to have the lowest rate um, being 69 cases per 100,000 people. So I think that general trend in the data is really something to pay attention to because I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, that there is this overlap. Yeah, I think it really brings to our attention of, or really think about like, you know, what are the lifestyles or living setups, uh, makeups of these communities. A lot of them have, I guess, larger families living together in one home, uh, multi-generational uh, people in one house. So grandparents and grandchildren all together um, in a smaller place because a lot of these uh, homes that a lot of these people are living in are apartments. And um, so thinking about that, and then looking at some of the workplaces that people in these areas are working at, and were they places that got shut down or were they places that stayed open? You know, a lot of the lower uh, paying jobs, the labor jobs, things like that, they had to work right through this pandemic. And whether it's a factory or it's a food place, a gas station, all those type of places, there's been cases popping up in all those locations. Uh, so like how many stories have we seen of uh, somebody who picked up a seasonal job at Amazon right. factory and ended up yeah. patching it and then um, ending end up uh, being hospitalized because of it. So it's unfortunately not a coincidence of why we're seeing it in these areas, um, but it really brings to light and hopefully a lot of people are really analyzing these numbers and coming to understand, you know, what these difference in lifestyles can, what difference it can make for somebody's health, in, especially throughout. Right. And I think to sort of echo um, a recent blog post that we released during this time, sort of this idea of who can afford to socially distance and physically distance themselves during this time and when jobs are on the line and when rent is due and so many other things are factors, it really begs the question of, can you really afford to socially distance? Um, and so I think that's also what we're seeing here. Leading that into a little bit more of what Red Dot Project does and the population we generally serve, when we look at the homeless population, how has that been affected by COVID-19? So I guess there are so many ways in which I think the difficulties of being homeless have just been made to be that much worse <laughs> during this time. So there's just a fundamental 
aspect of not having a place to self-isolate to begin with. Um, I think when you don't have a home, <laughs> you don't have a place to socially distance yourself. That's just a fact of the matter. Um, and then you have the issue of, which is already sort of an issue that existed, but again, is just amplified right uh, during this time where, you know, even when homeless people were in parks or other um, areas, then you have police officers more heavily patrolling those areas and handing out fines and tickets, which are simply ineffective because it's not like these people can pay like $500 fines um, to begin with. And they're really just trying to find a place to be at this time. And we know like our shelters have been over flooded. There's overcrowding in them. There's a lack of space. Um, also, they're also currently trying to sort of adhere to physical distancing regulations. So the numbers of people they can take in um, are even lower. So there are all these things coming together. And then there's also just the idea of sort of being able to maintain like I think we've heard on the radio and the media or wherever else like on tv like the government is just continuously <laughs> throwing in our face like wash your hands wash your hands and, and don't get me wrong obviously it's very important to wash your hands but if you don't have a place to wash your hands or to sort of maintain that level of hygiene you're not going to be able to just point blank mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like, that's one of the things that happened with this pandemic in lockdown is public washrooms were closed. Yeah. All businesses were closed. Even the ones that were open didn't uh, have their washrooms open. And the city washrooms were all closed. So uh, the city's solution was to put out porta potties, but uh, these porta potties didn't have sinks. So it, it just wasn't possible for people living on the streets to be able to maintain the same level of hygiene that they were able to before though that increases a lot of the risks uh, that we know of the spread of COVID-19 for people living on the streets and when we're looking at people accessing the shelters uh, there were 556 positive cases in the shelters in Toronto um, as of June 7th uh, those numbers and across 36 shelters we've seen cases so it's pretty widespread throughout toronto and um, again because it's just so difficult to socially distance within these shelters once there's a positive case in there there's a high high chance for outbreak within it uh, which yeah it's incredibly scary to be somebody who needs to access this type of service uh, knowing that you're probably going to be accessing a service that is going to be a place where you're going to be at highest risk of contracting the virus. For sure. And I think there are already so many barriers that exist and so many reasons why homeless folks choose not to access shelters. And I think there's already a shortage in um, beds and like resources on like a re regular given day, um, let alone during a pandemic. So like even with the issue with public washrooms, like that's already been a huge issue in in the city of Toronto for however long. Um, and then even with a lot of the businesses that are now closed, even prior to the pandemic, there was a lot of, you know, you have to be a paying customer to use it or ways that homeless folks get excluded from 
or are sort of like shunned away from crowding those spaces. So I think that, yeah, again, the pandemic is really just bringing greater visibility to these issues and these issues that have just been made to be made worse uh, during this time. For sure. Uh, and um, on top of, you know, the fact of just being able to access the shelter, like the shelters are usually went before p- pandemic wide. Um, they were operating at in the high 90s. I think it's somewhere around like 98% capacity all the time. And that's before pandemic. And if you're trying looking at lessening that number of people in the shelters so people could physically distance a little better, Um, That means you're for sure having to kick people out. And uh, so the city did try to remedy this a little. Um, They moved out for sure the positive cases that they've seen. They moved them to hotels. They tried to move out some other people to some hotels to try to uh, alleviate some of the amount of people that are going to be within the shelter and staying in the shelter. But even what we've seen done by the city, it still wasn't enough. Yeah, I think there's just been an overall, like, they were so slow to respond to the needs of these people. And then on top of that, they just haven't really (laughs) done enough, not nearly enough. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the time where hotel rooms became available to the time that advocates and workers in the shelters have been asking for this to happen, it's been, it was at least a good I would say, you know, generously three weeks, I would say, before we started to actually see some type of announcement of it actually happening. So it it was um, definitely a delayed response from the city, especially where we knew once it got into this system, it was going to be bad. So, you know, some of the other things that make it even worse is when you look at overall health for a lot of people experiencing homelessness and if their health isn't great because of lack of uh, housing and lack of uh, healthy food, then definitely their odds of fighting a virus this strong is not going to be as good as you know everyone else. So that alone should have prompted more of a quick response from the government. But what we've seen is a lot of people pointing fingers city saying provincial government's not helping out yeah. provincial government saying the federal government and all this other stuff so one of the big issues that we've seen is especially the city was complaining is that individuals like people all of us who are taxpayers and things like that we we receive money individually through whether it's the uh, canadian emergency relief uh benefit or yeah the serve or whatever else (laughs) so we all receive money different ways through different ways um but these systems that really needed that money to get going and you know prevent a lot of this uh spread of the virus and things like that they weren't given anything and that's a big reason why uh we see shelters and long-term care facilities and things like that got hit as hard as they did is because the money wasn't there to protect the people in them. Yeah, I think, yeah, for sure. I think like there was already such a shortage in funding um, and money going towards these communities. And then you have a pandemic that our government is underprepared for and that shortage just continues and worsens. (laughs) 
But, um, but yeah, I think there's the issue of like underlying medical conditions and health conditions that place homeless folks at greater risk for succumbing to, to COVID-19. And then there's also just this barriers and access, limited access to just information in the news and the media, right? Like if you lack access to a phone or the internet, um, it makes it hard to keep up with this rapidly evolving situation. And how do you like abide and adhere to safety protocols that are constantly changing and being updated if you're kept so out of touch with the media and everything that's going on. So I think, yeah, there's so, so many things that contributes to, to the circumstances we see. Mm -hmm, For sure. I think there online, there's a really good article that came out early in the pandemic. It's on the local.to and it's written by Kat Eschner. And she talks about how in Allen Gardens, the police are there guarding the benches and keeping people away from the park. Uh, she spent a day there and she observed and talked to some people there. And um, she got some firsthand experience of people living on the streets that uh, would be there and be harassed by the police uh, constantly be told they can't sit on the bench, they can't talk to the other people there. And then eventually, some of them were receiving tickets and fines for being there. And um, it's not something new, but it's definitely something that we've seen highlighted throughout the last couple of months where we see how in this park, how people are treated, specific people are treated. And then we go on the other side of town to Trinity Bellwoods. (laughs) And we know exactly how that park is operated. It it runs off its own rules on any day, but specifically through a pandemic where everyone's talking about how you deserve a fine if you break these rules. And then we saw what happened that first sunny day, um, how it played out. I think it was just like a gentle scolding. that people yeah. received um yeah the mayor showed yeah. up and yeah i think there's been a lot of hypocrisy happening <laughs> with them within our uh, sort of government leaders but anyways <laughs> that's yeah. another conversation <laughs> entirely yeah yeah we'll save that for yeah. another episode but uh yeah. yeah i think the other end that we don't talk about as much is the emotional support needed for people who are going through a pandemic people living on the streets uh they if they are able to get support that way it's often through peers that they're uh, living near and around or it's through the services they access and when they lose those things you could guarantee that uh their physical health is going to be affected by it yeah for sure i think um yeah sort of you know, if if we if we think about the ways in which people who have had the luxury and privilege of sort of socially distancing in a safe home with the resources and you know whether that be food or whatever else to get by during this time and and the impact that that has taken on individuals' mental health, I think this has been something that has spoken about a lot. The impacts of social distancing on us, and then you think about that in terms of and the experience of some those who are homeless right now. And and I think you can't even begin to imagine sort of like a lack of support um, and not having a support network during this time. Yeah, for sure. And um, the other end that 
this highlighted is things like financial supports. The government found a way to have $2,000 for any person that needs it during this time. So when we look at things like the ODSP, the Ontario Disability Support Program, and uh, Ontario Works, formerly uh, known as our welfare program that we have set up in Ontario, uh, people are living off of $1,200 a month through those programs. Um, there are some variables that maybe can give you a little bit more or a little bit less. And, you know, depending on how many um, people you have as dependents and all this other stuff. But um, that was deemed okay. You know, people still had problems that people were getting that much money. And then all of a sudden when it something affects all of us where we're not getting the income that we're used to. Um, $2,000 was the amount that was deemed the bare, um, minimum, yeah. the, the bare minimum. And yet we've never really questioned it, I guess, on a big scale, mass scale of, you know, why 1200 was a number that we got stuck with yeah. uh, in these programs. So the hope is that we can really talk about this a little more, uh, especially once the pandemic's over, and find ways to make sure that people are actually getting a adequate amount of money to support them through just living in low-income situations. For sure. I think, yeah, definitely, as especially because um, folks who maybe wouldn't have found themselves in situations of needing ODSP or Ontario Works in the past and now are finding themselves needing CERB, hopefully that hits a little closer to home and kind of solidifies sort of the struggles that these folks go through when trying to access basic supports from the government. But I think that's also been sort of one of the more positive aspects of COVID in some ways. I don't know if you can really call it positive, but I think it's really shed light on a lot of the problems that people have been talking about for years now and sort of solidified and highlighted like why people are upset about this. Um, and as it applies to more people, hopefully um, people will begin to collectively come together and understand that. For sure. Well, we can hope that that's how it goes. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. You know, I think, unfortunately, every time the Liberal government put in a universal basic income program pilot, um, it gets canceled and before the pilot's over. So we don't have a full study of how beneficial it is. If you look at the research that has been done that we do have so far, it does seem to be a positive way for people to uh, not stay dependent on these systems yeah. that we've have set up. And that's the biggest issue that we see with uh, things like ODSP and um, Ontario Works is that they really make you dependent on the program because once you start making a certain amount of money above whatever threshold it is, then you're losing the benefit yeah. that you're getting. And then that means you're losing money essentially. Yeah. So you can't save, you can't pursue things like school or anything like that because you just don't have that savings account, us, you know, growing for, for sure. Yeah. To opportunity even buy a home or anything like that. You can't do those things with the program that we have set up now. For sure. It seems like once you're starting to get back on your feet, sort of they pull out <laughs> that support right away. And it's sort of like how heavily um, surveilled people are 
on ODSP and Ontario Works. And now we're sort of seeing elements of that in CERB for sure as well. But yeah, I think these are all kind of telling of the current state of society that we live in and our government and their policies. Uh, but yeah, so moving into sort of some other topics that we wanted to cover today, a huge one we really wanted to address amidst all um, amidst this pandemic is sort of race and COVID-19. So we really wanted to go over why race is relevant to this conversation and why we need to be talking about it. So I guess if we look at from the get-go of things, there was this general whitewashing, I guess, if you can call it, of um, coronavirus. It was sort of like this idea that viruses don't discriminate and that everyone can be equally impacted. And while that is true, like viruses don't discriminate, um, I think we have to put that in the context of our society and sort of like the systemic inequalities that we see. So first and foremost, we saw, I think, like when all of this kind of unleashed itself and we were starting to, you know, become aware of like this thing even called coronavirus, um, I think we immediately saw a huge like backlash towards like the Asian community. There were whether that be like the uh, the virus story being referred to as like the Chinese virus and sort of like the racist acts of violence that we saw towards our Asian communities and individuals. So we already began to sort of see how race played played out in the context of this pandemic. And then furthermore, there were also myths of immunity that were being spread. So there were myths that Black folks were uh, like somehow immune to COVID-19 and the impacts of the virus. Which is also ironic considering like the contradiction if you think about that rhetoric of like the virus not discriminating and then <laughs> sort of this idea that black folks are immune. Um, it's really kind of interesting the way we come to <laughs> these thought processes like as a society. And I think it's really telling of how we view race. So there was a really great article that I stumbled across on written by Roberta K. Timothy. It was released um, by the University of, T of Toronto, and it was entitled Coronavirus is Not the Great Equalizer, um, Race Matters. So it, I thought this article really did like an excellent job of summarizing why race um, becomes essential in our discussions of COVID during this time. And specifically in terms of when we're looking at like how folks are disproportionately being impacted um, by the virus. So if we look historically and con uh, contemporarily speaking, I think it's important to address sort of like a, the fear and just the general lack of trust that already exists between certain communities and our healthcare systems today. So predominantly, that would be our Black and Indigenous communities in Canada, I think. Like historically and present day, we, these communities and individuals like repeatedly fail to have their needs met and addressed in an adequate manner by our healthcare systems. And this treatment has long stemmed from sort of systemic racism and violence that has been enacted against these communities and has continued over time. And then the article also brought to attention sort of just the general aspect of how racism impacts our health. Um, and I think that's something we don't talk about a lot. But when we sort of look at social determinants of health, 
you know, even like earlier when we were examining the ways in which being homeless impacts your health to begin with, we also have to look at the way in which um, racism impacts an individual's health. So they made a great point by sort of, they highlighted this quote in the article about Trudeau. And he was quoted saying, our government is going to make sure that no matter where you live, what you do and who you are, you get the support you need during this time. And like, while that sounds really great coming out of the prime minister's mouth, it's also in many ways completely negates the reality of like, that is just not true. <laughs> like, that's just not true. Like our homeless populations, our black and indigenous populations would totally argue otherwise. Like there weren't, there were already so many disparities that existed and there was already such a lack of adequate services being provided for these communities like prior to the pandemic. And we're, we just continue to see those disparities like grow and the government continue to not do anything and sort of just come on the news and make these blanket statements with really no accountability as to like, or or no even acknowledgement as to like what the reality really is for these people. Well, I think that's like a real important point that you just made where they said they're gonna help everybody, but yet until there was a real strong push for it, they weren't really monitoring how it has affected specific uh, communities. So they weren't doing uh, race-based data on COVID-19. And so if they're not collecting this information, how do they really expect to support these communities? It just sure. didn't add up. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's been so much, like there's been a lot of heavy criticism on Canada's lack of you know, race-based data, like in collecting this pertinent data at this time. And there's been a lot of like um, people urging for this to be done. And this request hasn't been really taken um, seriously. I think like there's just a, a serious fear here, especially for like our black com communities, um, for example, in particular, that if we don't have the numbers to sort of provide that evidence and speak to in in sort of like concrete, indisputable ways, what is going on in ground and how it relates to race and like how, for instance, our black communities are being disproportionately impacted. Um, individuals that are already like highly vulnerable and already suffer in, in disproportionate ways on a regular basis, like how they're being impacted right now during this pandemic. And, and I think it just reinforces this, it just contributes to sort of like rendering their experiences invisible once again. And um, I think that's the really scary part is that it really contributes and harms these communities to keep that and to not have that data available. For sure. Uh, it definitely would play into the government's numbers to make it look positive if they don't collect this data, because then if it hits certain populations, especially people of color a lot harder, and you know that it's not hitting uh, specifically white people as hard, and you know Canada still makes up of almost fifty percent white people. Then the numbers will definitely look more favorable for Canada as a whole if we don't record race. For sure, and I think it's also like, <laughs> like I think like we can't even use the excuse of like, oh, we don't do that because like Stats Canada and like Canada as a whole has like a reputation for being very active in like collecting data in that way. And so I think when you see something like this, it's like, it's not a matter of our ability to do so. It's just our 
being selective <laughs> in what is like, like you said, like favorable data for us. Um, and that's like a really scary and like dangerous thing, I think. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think also race, I, there are so many other ways race matters. Um, going back to just like the general scheme of COVID-19, I think if we look at our frontline workers, for instance, like our nurses, paramedics, like cleaners, even like PSWs, childcare workers, like many of them are racialized. And we have to kind of acknowledge that healthcare in, um, in our Western world has what I think is sort of like these racialized hierarchies where we have, you know, the folks who like black and indigenous folks, for instance, and healthcare workers, they're these aren't folks who easily and oftentimes find themselves in positions of power or in positions where they're able to sort of have a real say in the, the decision-making process that is going on. Um, however, these are the people who are subsequently impacted the most heavily by these decisions, especially in a time like this so so there's also that power imbalance that needs to be considered and um and then again just to state sort of like you have black and indigenous workers who already are uh face increased risk to sort of um levels of employment disparity and and they're already more vulnerable to finding themselves in situations of precarious work where it's just like, again, all these things are just further emphasized during a pandemic. For sure. Like, and, you know, it, we could go into the healthcare and the racism within that a lot if we really wanted yeah. to. But just the important thing to keep in mind is like, there are Ontario universities that weren't even accepting Black applicants into their medical school programs up into um quite recently um uft in 2016 only had one student that was in the medical program this year was the first time that they've had a valedictorian I, okay i saw that article and i think that was actually i saw like it was like a misprint because i think she was actually like the second valedictorian i'm not sure if it was like for that program specifically but i also think it's so funny that like i think it's so telling that like that has to be news like, you know, I think it really shows the inequality, just like that that is news. But anyways, sorry. No, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's either way, like the numbers are so low that it's really telling that black people were kept out of these uh, professions. It, it's not a matter of not having worthy applicants. It's just they weren't accepted and weren't allowed to be there. And that is a big reason why we see Doctors, there aren't too many that are black. Uh, there yeah. aren't too many that go through medical school because they just aren't accepted. Um, so in 2020, uh, we have over 60 black med students representing all 17 med schools in Canada. So the numbers are better, but you know we still have a long way to go to see um, a more inclusive medical system in Canada where there are doctors of um you know all colors being able to practice because what we've known in the past is just in regards to black people they were prescribed medication differently than white people historically yeah. uh, when we talk about painkillers and when they um 
you know, talk about pain and other type of things. They just didn't receive the same type of uh, diagnosis or care. And it negatively affected them a lot because there's a lot more suffering and a lot more pain. And you could probably safe to assume that there is much more deaths because of these misdiagnoses. For sure. And I think there's just been so much like evidence to substantiate this like general idea that we have ingrained in us as a society that sort of like black people have this ability to withstand greater amounts of pain. And um, I think that like also plays a huge role in their health concerns not being met by professionals or taken seriously. Like when they go to doctors and they, you know, it's so readily dismissed because we do, we have like this, this ideology that has been embedded historically throughout time that suggests that like, you know, black people are just, and it plays out into like the myth of immunity that we were talking about earlier, like sort of like what on earth would make a black person just immune or anyone it like just, immune to coronavirus like it just it just sounds ridiculous when you kind of think about it that way but like that that's just the reality like we have these biases um within us that i think we're we're not even really aware of oftentimes well if you see like those meme pages like on six bots and stuff they would say it's because of the uh uh corona hasn't hit the islands because of things like the alcohol like rum and <laughs> things like that that they are drinking that makes them immune and and the the funny thing is that people start to believe it because they're like For oh sure. you know maybe the alcohol will kill it <laughs> yeah. and and then that's why they're able to have carnival in uh trinidad uh this year because everyone was drinking so much alcohol oh my gosh oh i mean i think oh my gosh yeah but, yeah yeah so i think you have some more specific information geared towards how COVID-19 affected Indigenous groups? Yeah, so I think then when we talk about our Indigenous communities, I think first we have to talk about it in terms of like on a global scale, Indigenous communities have historically experienced like pandemics in a way that has been like all too familiar to them in very, very like brutal ways that have like wiped out many of their communities and so on and so forth. So I think that like there's definitely... Um, necessarily necessary alarm <laughs> that like goes into when you hear something like COVID happening because these are communities that are especially vulnerable. Um, so we've already kind of established the way in which um, this pandemic is sort of like exacerbating deep-seated health and socioeconomic inequalities like all over the world. Um, but what that really means for Indigenous populations who often face like staggering rates of poverty um, and lack of access to just like basic and fundamental resources and services, whether that be like an access to clean water or um, housing or all of these things, it sort of like makes it hard when we have like public health officials continuously like urging us to like socially distance ourselves and sort of like just wash our hands all the time um, as like a primary I guess, like line of defense to, to, to what's going on. It's, it's just sort of like in a lot of indigenous communities where people are living in cramped quarters or like the tap water or whatever water they have available to them is not safe for like drinking or like taking a shower in. It's like, how are you like those, those measures that they call for are just like not feasible 
for these people. So I think that's like, that's like a huge issue. I think also, you know, this is not too different from like some of the other populations we already discussed today, but you see like indigenous people, they suffer from higher rates of chronic illness. So a lot of them do also have like underlying health conditions that do make them more susceptible to coronavirus. And then if they do like get coronavirus, then they are at greater risk to sort of like having more severe complications as a result of being exposed to it and and then so on and so forth. So yeah, it's just getting a positive case of corona in a remote area where the hospitals don't have respirators. It's basically a death sentence right yeah. like you just aren't they're not equipped to have multiple people uh need these type of equipment it's just because we haven't funded the the same way um a lot of people don't understand but the indigenous uh communities are funded very differently than the everyone else's medical uh system so money is not equally given into that system as it is ours and uh so there's huge deficits in how it's run and uh it's extremely dangerous for uh, a lot of communities that are a lot more remote i remember seeing a lot of memes partway through the pandemic where people are like oh there's zero cases in none of it let's all move there and i'm just thinking to myself like just don't leave them alone they like they don't need us up there so we uh, have to be very mindful of how life for us in Toronto is very different for people just a couple hours away. Yeah, for sure. And I think like adding to your point of sort of like being in these remote locations and not having that access to like these health services that you would need during this time or during any time for that matter, but, but you see like people having to commute like or like travel long distances just to to reach a facility where they can access this medical care. And then there's also the issue of it's been the it's been really worrisome for a lot of indigenous communities, the way in which coronavirus is especially dangerous for their tribal elders. So if just for those of you who aren't aware, sort of like um, indigenous elders are sort of seen as being like um, the knowledge keepers and language holders and and amongst indigenous communities. And I think there's already such a fear of losing important elements that culture that has been wiped out time and time throughout history, that this just poses a greater threat to that, which is also a very scary reality right now. Yeah, for anyone who has the extra time that can listen to another podcast other than ours, or after ours at least. The Secret Life of Canada is a great one, and they have an episode about the Hudson Bay blankets oh, and just how those blankets were used a long time ago to basically spread viruses and wipe out many elders, millions, like daily in a lot of Indigenous communities with smallpox. So it's a great episode to really listen to to understand how introducing these type of things in communities that aren't equipped to uh, deal with them is not only devastating because you're losing people, but you're losing ability to share knowledge and history that will be lost if we lose them suddenly like that at that rate. Yeah, for sure. We're almost hitting the hour mark. (laughs) So maybe we just kind of like want to wind down now and yeah. So 
how has COVID-19, how has that sort of changed your day-to-day life of, you know, navigating yourself through this world, Um, especially being a young Asian woman, you know, what is that like for you to uh, be affected by this? Well, for me, I think I've been very fortunate and privileged to be able to sort of like socially distance in my home. So I think in terms of, I haven't like experienced any direct like racial attacks or like any kind of um, that sort of thing. I think I've been relatively protected from that (laughs) just by being inside. Um, But I think um, the way it's really impacted me particular is like from a mental health standpoint (laughs) and as someone um, sort of living with mental illness, I think it's been kind of like a great time, (laughs) but also a really difficult time. I think this pandemic has really, for me, it's felt like a time where like the world has kind of slowed down to a pace where I can keep up with. And that's been beneficial for me just to sort of like, feel like I'm not constantly like, (laughs) you know, um, playing catch up with the rest of the world. And um, just kind of like having that time to myself on another hand though. And I think in the same way that a lot of people's mental health has suffered during this time is sort of having all that time to be in my own head has been, sort of detrimental in its own ways. But um, I think all in all, really lucky to sort of just have a safe space to socially distance myself and kind of, it's just really been a time for me in particular to really focus on just learning more about the world (laughs) that we live in. I think it, you know, this pandemic has shed a lot of visibility and a lot of light into um, just how problematic like a lot of our inherent structures in society are. And I think it's the downtime. I'm really grateful for having provided me sort of like that additional time to do some more reading, listen to more podcasts, kind of like educate myself as to what's going on. And yeah, I think that's what I've been grateful for. (laughs) What would you say, Phil? Uh, I think, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think within my family, I have quite a few people that work within the medical field. Um, I have a couple of physiotherapists, a couple of doctors, my mother, she's a PSW. So we have all these different people that are essential workers. And it's always scary that they are going in and working in these areas and hospitals and things like that. And so that was a bit of scare for me. And then you see, especially specifically someone like my mother, uh, where there's all this praise for PSWs and healthcare workers for the work they do, but yet knowing how much she gets paid to do that work. And these free meals and stuff are nice, but it doesn't really help in the long run of um, being able to do this type of work. You know, getting paid, you know, somewhere in, you know, just over $20 an hour uh, to do this hard physical labor. Um, and a lot of uh, PSWs that at least I've seen and known, they're women in, you know, their maybe late 40s or up. Like at my mom's work, there are women in their 50s and 60s still doing it. And um, they're nowhere near ready to be able to retire. And a lot of it is because the pay just isn't adequate enough for them to set them up for as their body starts right. to wear down to 
be able to stop. And so the thanks and the praise is great. And it was nice, I think, boost of morale at first. But I think it wore thin quite quickly as, you know, a lot of places just gave what they thought people wanted and never really asked what what do you need. And so that uh, that was one end of it where it's just like, you know, because of uh, I live in the same home as my mom, I lessened my work already because of it. But then I didn't go back yeah. to work up to now because I didn't want to be um, in a, environments where I would be exposed to a lot of people and she's in environments where she's exposed potentially. And then having that uh, spread, it would be not great. So, um, so far right now, I've very much limited and been trying to socially distance as much as I can. Um, I still go and I do a little bit of volunteer work where I deliver some food out to some locations and I still do the red dot stuff. So I try to really save those opportunities so that's why i haven't worked and luckily you know with programs like the serb i was able to do that um where i could take a little bit of time and instead of rushing to find another job that i could get out and make money to pay the bills there's that but then you know the whole thing of being asian and walking around through coronavirus definitely brought back a lot of memories of sars remember those times but i guess being older and really seeing it through yeah. i guess an adult point of view and also with you know president of the united states like targeting asian people for this problem it it definitely oh yeah um, definitely at the beginning makes yeah. you super hyper aware of your surroundings and who's around you at all times <laughs> especially in the first month or so of this um <laughs> Then you have to cough like yeah, 10 you, times. You, you try your best not to cough, but then because you're trying not to cough, your throat all of a sudden gets super dry. And then <laughs> exactly. So then I like I'm in stores and then yeah. I'm like trying to find a quiet, like empty aisle so I can run and try to like cough into my sleeve as quietly as possible so people don't get scared. But um, you know, I think in the GTA, I hear, you know, and I've seen a lot of people wearing masks, and I think people are relatively more comfortable being in areas now because we all are uh, hopefully protecting ourselves in doing so. I have a relative that went up to visit yeah. her family in London, Ontario, where it is predominantly still a very white populated area, and the cases just aren't as high there. And so for her, when she walked in that area, she helped her father with grocery shopping. So she's walking around with a mask on and everything. She said the looks weren't even like subtle that she was getting of how, you know, people were fearing her, like stopping dead in their tracks as she walked by or even avoiding aisles that she was in uh, because right. there's just so much fear that she had it. Um, one because she was wearing a mask probably and two because she's like the only yeah. Asian person in the supermarket that day so it definitely does have an effect on you right like how you navigate through the world while this is happening while you feel like people are watching you and are fearful of you um, it affects the way that you uh, respond like so the first time I went out and I've heard like yeah. people talk something about you know oh you know COVID-19 oh there's a guy over Asian guy over there or something like that like you get super defensive and like you want to react to it and so it's very important that you know you sort of have to 
prepare yourself mentally before you go out now have those encounters and respond to them in a way that you know you're not going to get yourself into any trouble yeah for sure I think like you brought up some really good points that kind of I think part of the reason too where I feel like I've been more shielded from it is not even just by remaining at home um but I think because like I live in a relatively Asian community um so yeah like if I was living in London Ontario I think I would have a lot more to say about that but yeah definitely I think there's a lot of like misinformation too and then that the like the xenophobia just like comes out um that's probably already there but now just feels like it's given more legitimacy (laughs) because of this virus so yeah I don't I don't know yeah it's 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 definitely been an experience and then also just going back to sort of like experiences with SARS I think for me like I was young at that time and so I don't really have a vivid recollection of like what it was like to be Asian during that time I think like I don't know so I can't really speak to whether or not it's a lot worse now I think like what you were saying though with like the situation with Trump in the states like that definitely probably like reinforces that to a great degree and it sort of gives like permission to like a lot of the xenophobia to like happen even so I think that definitely like makes it worse in this current context but um but yeah I think that this is you know there's been SARS and then there was like swine flu but I think this is like the most the most vivid like experience that I can speak to and I think that's also just because I'm older and that I'm able to sort of like observe the way this is just like impacting not only myself and my community but just how it's playing out in politics and in the world so for sure. Yeah, you know, this is definitely going to be one that we talk about over and over again for the rest of our lives. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, at least for us to, we never experienced a situation where the whole, you know, city, country, the world basically had a lockdown and right. ran this thing through. So um, who knows when we'll have this experience again? Hopefully not for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But um, no matter what, we are definitely going to be changed by it and (laughs) we are going to have to see what those those changes are yeah hopefully Um, they will be changes in the right direction and not the other way (laughs) but uh but yeah yeah, that's the ultimate goal but we will wait and see and we will continue to talk about these issues and how they affect especially vulnerable communities and how we can hopefully build structures and systems that are more efficient in their goal. Yeah. And and hopefully their goals are the ones that we think they are. Yeah, so like that way, human rights would be great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah. some people say they're doing a perfect job at what their goals are, but we're not going to go into all that right now. But uh, we will just say for what these programs are supposed to do, we hope we can find a way to make them run more effectively through this experience yeah for sure so we are at the time where we're gonna have to cut this off Uh, so a lot of people who are listening either are done their walks for the day or (laughs) got to work and back (laughs) so it's a good time for us to wrap up today you know thank you so much for coming by and jumping on this podcast episode for today yeah no it's been great it's been great and i think these are some 
very pertinent discussions to be having right now. So hopefully we were able to sort of provide a brief overview of what's going on on ground for um, some of the voices that aren't really being put forth during this time. And we hope that everyone's staying safe during this time as well. For sure. Uh, we are hoping to record semi-regularly throughout the pandemic and uh, we hope to put out you know episodes almost hopefully weekly but that's ambitious I know. <laughs> so, um, but the best way to keep track and know when they're coming is to subscribe to us on whatever app you use to get your podcasts uh, other ways are you can find us on instagram at red dot project and also on our red dot project uh, account you can also find usually information and updates of our podcast through there uh, so if you did enjoy what you listened to if you thought it was great if you thought it was good give us five stars on the apple podcast app you know whatever ranking system you could do on whatever app you use to get your podcast please give us a lot of stars or yeah point or whatever it we is we appreciate any support <laughs> yeah um, our way. for sure so until next time have a good time be safe and try your best to take care <laughs>